This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. Every summer, I have the distinct pleasure of spending an entire month with people from all over the world here in Dallas teaching the Arabic language, Quranic Arabic, the language of the Quran, and discussing and exploring the timeless lessons and wisdoms of the Book of Allah. We call this experience Quran Intensive. Please check out BayinaSummer.com That's B-A-Y-Y-I-N-A-H Summer.com to get more information and sign up. I look forward to seeing you here Insha'Allah at the Quran Intensive. A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitanir Rajeem فَأَوْحَيْنَا إِلَيْهِ أَنِسْنَعِ الْفُلْكَ بِأَعْيُنِنَا وَوَحْيْنَا فَإِذَا جَاءَ أَمْرُنَا وَفَارَتَ النُّورُ فَاسْلُكْ فِيهَا فَاسْلُكْ فِيهَا مِنْ كُلِّ زَوْجَيْنِ اثْنَيْنِ وَأَهْلَكَ إِلَّا مَا سَبَقْ إِلَّا مَا سَبَقَ عَلَيْهِ الْقَوْلُ مِنْهُمْ وَلَا تُخَاطِبْنِي فِي الَّذِينَ ظَلَمُوا إِنَّهُمْ مُغْرَقُونَ فَإِذَا اسْتَوَيْتَ آتَ فَإِذَا اسْتَوَيْتَ آتَ وَمَنْ مَعَكَ عَلَى الْفُلْكِ فَقُلِ الْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ الَّذِي نَجَّانَا مِنَ الْقَوْمِ الظَّالِمِينَ وَقُلْ رَبِّ أَنْزِلْنِي مُنْزَلًا مُبَارَكًا وَآتَ خَيْرُ الْمُنْزِلِينَ إن في ذلك لآيات وإن كنا لمبتلين الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبة للمتقين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن تبعهم بإحسان إلى يوم الدين إن شاء الله today we'll be starting with ayah number 27 and this will conclude uh, the mention of Nuh عليه السلام here in this particular surah so a brief translation of ayah number 27. And so we revealed to him, build the ark under our watchful eye and according to our revelation. When our command comes and water gushes up out of the earth, take pairs of every species on board and your family, except for those on whom the sentence has already been passed. Do not plead with me for the evildoers, they will be drowned. So there's a lot of very um, interesting uh, vocabulary throughout the ayah, uh, but due to the length of the ayah, we'll kind of address it as we're kind of progressing our way through. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَأَوْحَيْنَا إِلَيْهِ That we then revealed to Him. Now, iha in the Arabic language basically means to kind of inspire or to send a message. And this, this is a very interesting word. So obviously the word wahi comes from this same root. And so wahi, which we often translate as revelation, comes from the same root. Now, the topic of revelation and even the word wahi and this verb, this fi'il, iha, awha, is the subject of some very fascinating conversation within the Qur'an itself. Simply because when we translate it as revelation, we're thinking of scripture, divine revelation, like that which is given to a prophet or a messenger. But the fact of the matter is that the Qur'an mentions and utilizes the same word when talking about non-messengers or non-prophets as well. 
the mother of Musa. The mother of Musa, which no scholar uh, of the religious sciences has ever held the position that the mother of Musa was a prophet or a messenger. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَأَوْحَيْنَا إِلَىٰ أُمِّ مُوسَىٰ That we inspired to the mother of Moses, an ardi'ihi to nurse him. فَإِذَا خِفْتِ عَلَيْهِ Then when you fear for his safety, فَأَلْقِيهِ فِي الْيَمِّ وَلَا تَخَفِي وَلَا تَحْزَنِي Then put him into the river, and then do not fear, nor should you grieve. Right? So the mother of Musa, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is using the same word, iha, which again, we could roughly translate as, to uh, reveal. Um, similarly, and this is probably the most drastic example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَأَوْحَى رَبُّكَ إِلَى النَّحْلِ مِنَ الْجِبَالِ بُيُوتًا That your master and your Lord, Allah, He, again the word awha, He inspired or He revealed to the bee, to the bee, the insect, bee. أَنِتَّخِذِي مِنَ الْجِبَالِ بُيُوتًا That you should go and make homes for yourself uh, within the mountains. Right? So Allah is now using that same word when talking about communicating with the bees or teaching or telling the bees what to do. So obviously there's not even a question here of whether we're discussing prophethood or nubuwa or risala or anything of that nature. So it does become a little bit of a more nuanced conversation and we have to pay more attention to the actual meaning of the word. We, it might have become a standard part of our terminology, uh, Islamic you know, legal or Islamic technical terminology, but that's exactly that. That's a matter of terminology, istilahat as they're referred to, and the discussions within a particular science. But the Qur'an is obviously demonstrating the fact that the Qur'an uses, it, uses this particular word in its more literal uh, and linguistic meaning. And that is to inspire someone with some type of action. To inspire someone to take some type of action. That that is the core meaning of the word. To communicate to someone's heart. And to really inspire that action or the course of action within them. And then of course, in Islamic legal uh, discussions or Islamic technical discussions, now it takes on the meaning of revelation. And to reveal uh, the scripture and prophethood and revelation to prophets and messengers. And this is something that even within the Islamic sciences is not unheard of. This is something very familiar to us. Um, one of the most common examples of this, particularly we share with the students, is that the word sunnah. Now the word sunnah, depending on within the Islamic sciences, it depends on which science you're discussing. Right? That determines the meaning of the word sunnah. So a lot of times when they talk about ma'thur or sunnah within the science of tafsir, that is everything that comes from the Prophet ﷺ and also the opinions of the Sahaba in regards to verses of the Qur'an. Because the Sahaba and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, vouches for them in the Qur'an and, so, and, what we, and the Prophet ﷺ vouched for them. So we know that the Sahaba would dare never comment really conclusively on the Qur'an, unless and until they had really heard this from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Unless of course then there's, sometimes when you do hear kind of maybe a bizarre opinion attributed to Sahabi, you can usually um, debunk that because it's not authentically attributed and connected to that Sahabi, that companion. So within the science of tafsir, it's anything the Prophet sallallahu or the companions of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi commented in regards to an ayah. Now you shift over to uh, the science of what we call hadith. Uh, 
Now in the sciences of hadith, a sunnah, kullu ma yata'allaqu bi nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Each and every single thing that relates, that has anything to do with the Prophet So when we talk about the height, the height of the Prophet that is a part of the sunnah. When we talk about the color of his hair, that he had 16 or 17 or 18 white hairs within his beard, that is a part of the sunnah. When we talk about the shape of his eyes, that is a part of the sunnah. But that's within hadith sciences. Okay, now let's shift over to the science of fiqh. Jurisprudence, legal, right? So if you go over to the Islamic legal framework, the word sunnah, the meaning of that term in that science is a recommended act. A recommended act. Now look at how different all three definitions have already become, right? First and foremost, anything that the Prophet or his companions said about the Qur'an in tafsir, anything pertaining the height of the Prophet is sunnah in hadith sciences. But in fiqh, it's what is actually a recommended act. So it's not recommended to be of a particular height, obviously. So it's very different. And even I would go as far as that if you look at the science of aqidah, that the word sunnah there is actually used almost as an antonym. It's used as an antonym, the opposite term for the word bid'ah. Bid'ah is an innovation or a perversion of the deen and the religion. So it's an act that is not native, that is not intuitive to the religion. So sunnah is all that which very naturally and intuitively belongs within the religion. Completely different term. So the issue, this is the nature of terminology and that's why... You know, we have this discipline, we've maintained this discipline for the most part for 1400 years that, you know, this is not some exclusive, uh, you know, issue or it's not some, you know, religious elitism or the ivory mimbar or so on and so forth that we're trying to hold Islamic knowledge back from people. But there is obviously, there are prerequisites and there is a course of study and there is a system to approaching different discussions and different Islamic sciences. Right? You have to familiarize yourself with these terminologies, otherwise you can get very, very quickly you can get lost. And you can become confused. So the word wahi I was explaining, that when we use it within Islamic discourse, we're talking about revelation to prophets and messengers. But the Qur'an uses it in its more linguistic meaning, and that is to inspire a course of action or action within any of God's creation. That when Allah inspires them to action. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does with the prophets and the messengers, non-prophets and messengers, but remarkable people like the mother of Moses, alayhi salam, and also even animals, like Allah talks about the bees. So just wanted to clarify a little bit about this word. So what Now obviously we're talking about Nuh alayhi salam, and that's why the translator has felt comfortable with the translation of revealed. But nevertheless, we can pay a little bit more attention to his literal meaning. Then Allah says that we inspired to him, to Nuh, and we revealed to him. And what did we reveal? What did we inspire to him? Anisna'il fulka bi'a'yunina. Sana'a in the Arabic language means to make, to craft, to build something. Um, and it involves a certain amount, a certain level of, I wouldn't quite say expertise. That's mahara, that's a completely different word. But it still requires some level of skill and attention to detail to kind of know what you're doing. And a lot of mufassirun have gone into lengthy discussions 
um, even pulling on some of the Israeliyat, that was Nuh, a carpenter, was he familiar with working with different types of raw materials and things like that? Um, and that is, maybe, that could be a fruitful discussion, but I didn't really feel that it was pertinent for us to delve into a lot of detail here, especially because there's a lot of conjecture, and it's a lot of guessing involved here. But nevertheless, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told him to craft. And <clears throat> as some of the Mufassirun, like Ibn Kathir and Qurtubi say, that that discussion really becomes unnecessary when you read further in the ayah, and if you pay attention to what the ayah is saying. So Allah says, we, we commanded him, we, we told him, we inspired to him to build, isna', it's a command form, that build a ship, bi'a'yunina. Now bi'a'yunina is a phrase, kind of an expression in the Arabic language, that is used um, a number of different places, tajiri bi'a'yunina, it's a, it's a phrase or an expression that is used within the Arabic language. And it's even used in the Qur'an a number of times. If you literally translate it, it means, you know, with our eyes. If you literally translate it word for word, kind of like we're using a dictionary. But obviously, that doesn't take into consideration that put together all three components. The ba, harf of jar, a'yun is the plural of the word ayn, which means I. And then na, our I. So when you put it all three of them together in classical Arabic, and this is demonstrated within poetry as well, that it basically means under our guard, under our watchful eye. Now what does that, of course everything is happening under Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's watchful eye, of course as an expression meaning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sees all, He's told us He's Basir. He's Basir. Right? Allah sees all, He knows all, He hears all. So of course everything is happening under Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's watch. Right? But what does this exactly mean? That under our watchful eyes. So this is basically Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promising His protection to Nuh alayhi salam. Because Allah is telling Nuh alayhi salam to go and do something very drastic. Right? That they're in the middle of His people, especially amidst all the opposition that He's facing, to all of a sudden go and start constructing a huge ark, a huge ship, that is going to obviously attract a lot of attention, there's going to be a lot of questions, a lot of discussion, a lot of debate, a lot of taunting. And in fact, Surah Hud talks about exactly that. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in Surah Hud, in Surah number 11. وَيَصْنَعُ الْفُلْكِ This is ayah number 38 from Surah Hud, Surah number 11. وَيَصْنَعُ الْفُلْكِ That he was building the ship. The ark. And every single time a group of those elite people passed by him, سَخِرُوا مِنْهُ They would mock him. They would ridicule him. They would jeer at him. He said, you can laugh and make fun and you know, um, humiliate or try to embarrass or humiliate us as much as you want. But the truth of the matter is that one day we will point at you and point out your mistake, just as you are trying to do to us today. Right? So this is, this is mentioned within the Qur'an as well. So obviously, Nuh alayhi salam, the, naturally the question occurs that this could be a very problematic course of action amongst the people. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling him that don't worry, you'll be under our watchful eye. And we can compare this, we can, con- we can compare this to when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent Musa alayhi salam on his mission. He told him, And Musa alayhi salam, of course, presented before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah knowing all, but he's talking to Allah, he presented
presented before Allah that وَلَهُمْ عَلَيْكَ ذَنْبٌ فَأَخَافُ أَنْ يَقْتُلُونَ That I am wanted there for a crime that they've accused me of and I'm afraid that if I show up there, if I go back there and announce myself, that they will kill me. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told Musa alayhi salam, إِنَّنِي مَعَكُمَا أَسْمَعُوا وَأَرَى I am with the both of you, I am listening and I am watching. And again, that doesn't need to be said. Allah sees all, He knows all, He listens to all. But it being specifically said within that context, communicates and conveys that confidence. That don't worry, I'll take care of you. And so this is the same idea here, that construct the ark and the ship under our protection. وَوَحِينَا وَوَحِينَا And construct the ship based on our instruction. Under our protection and according to our instruction. Wahi. Again, the inspiration, the instruction that we've given you. And that solves the question. We don't really have to figure out, هَلْ كَانَ نُوحٌ نَجَّارًا أَمْ لَا Right? Was Nuh a carpenter or not? هَلْ كَانَ يَعْرِفُ الصَّنَاعَ أَمْ لَا Right? That all becomes an unnecessary conversation because Allah is saying, Allah inspired him the exact instruction as to what to do and how to go about in doing that. And we can't put that past. Why, why is that so unfathomable? Why is so that, so, that so difficult for us to imagine? فَإِذَا جَاءَ أَمْرُنَا Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling him, and again, this is all kind of t- telling him what will transpire in the future. إِذَا communicates something that will happen in the future. فَإِذَا جَاءَ أَمْرُنَا Then when our command arrives, when it comes... وَفَارَ التَّنُّرُ وَفَارَ التَّنُّرُ فَارَ basically refers to water gushing. Alright? Or it just refers to something coming up, something rising up. التَّنُّر Now, here there's going to be a little bit of a discussion. تَنُّر, the word تَنُّر in the Arabic language literally means an oven. Like an oven that's built within the ground to, base, to bake stuff or cook stuff, like baking bread. Alright, so, so some mufassirun are of the opinion that this is literally referring to an oven that was in the ground, that when water comes rushing up through that oven, like before it actually starts to rain down and before the earth starts to flood, miraculously water will come gushing up through that oven. A place that is sealed off, obviously to be an oven has to be sealed off, so there's no obvious outlet of water. Number two, it's a place where you burn fire. So you see the miraculousness of it. Right? When ev- that, that's going to be a sign that everything's about to change. When water comes from where you put fire, the earth is all about to become water and flooded. Right? So that's going to be a miraculous sign that will be given to you exclusively and specially so that now you can start making preparations and do what needs to be done. So that's the literal and the obvious meaning of it. However, some of the Mufassirun have had other opinions and other positions. Uh, one of the opinions narrated from Abdullah bin Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhum as that tanur wajul ard. That tanur basically refers to the earth itself. That when the waters, when, when the ground itself, where there's no water, when you start to notice a little bit of water there, and it seems like, where did water come, come from? There was no water here. Right? That when you start to kind of notice puddles and everything is starting to get wet and water is slowly starting to rise up and now things are getting muddy and so on and so forth, then now's the time to move. 
that it just refers to the earth in general. Qatada, one of the students of the Sahaba, and one of the uh, main mufassirun, he says, Ashrafu fil ardi This refers to a very specific high place that when you notice water there, then now you know that this it's time to go. Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala anhu, an opinion is attributed to him. Faratan Nuru means Tala al Fajru. That when morning time comes, now you should take the following course of action. Um, and some of the Mufassirun, like Zamakhshari and Razi and others, basically they argue um, that this is not completely bizarre. Like how do we go from an oven becoming filled with water to the sun rising up? Because there are um, other expressions in the Arabic language very similar to this. So for instance, when the sun rises up, um, like the early morning time, they refer to that time as Hamal Watis. Hamal Watis, which basically means that the plate has become hot. The plate has become hot, referring to the ground. So there are very figurative expressions of this nature uh, within the Arabic language. So it's not completely uh, out of the realm of possibility that it could be interpreted in these ways. But um, of all people, Razi actually, he kind of concludes uh, the conversation by saying, He says that, however, the, the, the most sound interpretation, understanding of wafarat nuru is the first one, which that literally you have this oven inside of your home and it will just start to overflow with water. It'll just become filled up with water inexplicably. Right? That's literally what it means because he says that one of the principles that we operate under is that moving from the literal and obvious meaning of something to a more uh, figurative meaning is not allowed unless or until there is some type of evidence or indication that that is the meaning, the figurative meaning is intended here. And this is from the sciences of the interpretation of the Qur'an and the sunnah of the Prophet So that definitely does make a lot of sense here. So, وَفَارَتَ nuru That when the oven basically begins to overflow uh, with water. Now, some of the mufassirun have also talked about where was this oven, where was this tanur, where was this exactly located. There's even that level of a discussion. Uh, very briefly, Sha'bi, one of the early scholars of tafsir, he says that, um, this was located near the region of what we call Kufa, and actually a masjid is constructed now there um, where the house of Nuh alayhi salam uh, was based, um, and, or rather, uh, yes, where the house of Nuh alayhi salam was based, and that's also near where he built his ark. Um, and then some others basically say that it's no, it's in Bilad al-Sham, uh, the area of the Levant in a place called Ain Warda. There's even some opinions that say that it was in India. All right, so we get a little something. All right, so, <laughs> all right, so. But again, there's obvi- there's obviously nothing conclusive in this regard. So it's really a discussion that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala didn't even really instruct us to have here. So we can leave it at that. And there's even some opinions, and of course, this is all based off of Israeliyat that some say this tanur was actually originally dug and placed there and constructed by Adam alayhi salam himself, and it was kind of the home was passed down through the family until Nuh alayhi salam in inherited it wallahu ta'ala alam sawab allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best so wafarat nur when that oven begins to overflow with water fasluk now what should you do when you see that sign fasluk fiha the fiha the ha is going back to the fulk 
the ship. Fasluk. Fasluk now, the word salaka in the Arabic language means to kind of carve out a path or to take a path. And when the word fasluk is used in kind of a transitive type meaning, it also means to kind of lead. To lead or to take. Alright, so this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is using this particular word here instead of fadkhul. Uh, like enter into the ark and the ship, the following. Here Allah says lead. Because obviously the ayah is going to tell us it's talking about animals, which is not just a matter of just kind of pointing at the ark and saying, all right, go there now. You're going to have to lead these animals in. So it's actually giving Nuh alayhi salam an idea of the work that he has to look forward to. That there's going to be a lot of work, so therefore you should prepare accordingly. And even make arrangements for leading these animals. Because you might need different types of tools or, or resources in order to lead and guide some of these animals into the ark. So make preparations accordingly. So there's a lot of nuance built into this ayah, very remarkably. Some of the Mufassirun discussed that in Surah Hud, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Fahmil fiha, carry in the, sh- in the ark, in the ship. So over there Allah says, carry in the ark, in the ship. Here He says, lead them into the ark. Why the different wording? Why the different verbiage? And if you can already tell, right, just through common sense, that's exactly accurate, that over there Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is basically telling Nuh alayhi salam that that conversation, the wording of that ayah is specific to the time when the water had already started to gush forth. And now He's telling him, now load them into the ship. Here, this is prior. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is actually telling him to start kind of rounding up these animals. Start rounding up these animals and start making preparations in order to lead them and guide them over to the ark. So again, you notice a nuance within the wording and the language of the Qur'an. Fasluk fiha. So lead into the ark, into the ship. What? Min kullin zawjaini ithnaini. Min kullin zawjaini ithnaini. Now, hafs. In the Qira'ah and the Riwayah of Hafs, it's min kullin, with tanween. And zawjani therefore is like a sifa of the word kullin. However, the majority of the Riwayat in the Qira'ah, they say min kulli zawjani. Min kulli zawjani, it's idafa. Right? Which, in essence though, the meaning basically is achieved in either scenario. So min kullin zawjani, so from different pairs of animals. But then Allah says, ithnaini. Ithnaini, two. Doesn't a pair already mean two? Yes or no? It's an English question, you can answer it confidently. Yes. A pair already means two. So we're saying a pair of animals, and then we're saying ithnaini, two. Okay, so that, am I missing something here, or is it redundant? So the answer is, I'm definitely missing something here. That in the Arabic language, zojani is not just simply a pair. But specifically the word zoj and zojain, when it's used like that, it means opposites. وَمِن كُلِّ شَيْءٍ خَلَقْنَا Opposites. Because over there in Surah Yasin where Allah says that, what did He talk about prior to that? Sun and the moon. He talked about night and day. He talked about the sky and the earth. He talked about iman and kufr. Belief and disbelief. So it actually, zawjain, when it's used in that dual form, it actually means opposite. So it means male and female. Then why add the word ithnain? Again, somebody could still argue, brother, still male and female. That still means two. 
Here's the, here's the thing to understand how this word is used in the Arabic language because a lot of times the English translation impacts our understanding of it and our objection is coming from an English speaking perspective but understand it from the Arab's perspective. It means the opposites, male and female. That's all that the word zawjain means. That look for males and look for females. Ithnain was to put a limit. However, only two per species. Meaning one male and one female. You understand? The word ithnain means two from each species. The word zojain clarifies male and female. So Allah is saying from all species, male and female, but only two per animal. And again the Mufassirun explained that. Why? Because Nuh alayhi salam possibly could have worried that, well, what if one of the animals ends up dying? Or ends up getting ill or sick or something like that? What's the backup plan? Maybe we should take an extra pair. As a backup plan. What did Allah already say earlier in the ayah? بِأَعْيُنِنَا وَوَحْيِنَا Under our protection and with our, according to our instruction. Meaning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling him, you will only take two per species, two per animal, one male and one female, and you will not worry about the backup plan. Allah is your backup plan. Alright, so that's, that's that. So that's why you see what seems like to us repetition from an English-speaking perspective, but it is actually uh, very important, and it's not redundant at all. Wa'ahlak, and as you lead these animals, two of each kind, one male and one female, into the ship, you will also lead your family. Wa'ahlak, minus illa, minus except for man sabaka alayhi al minhum, except for the for those. In regards to whom the decision has already been made. A verdict and a decision has already been given. Now, this is not necessarily saying that Nuh was told prior to that, that these, these, these family members of yours are obviously doomed. That maybe it was apparent through some of their actions, but also what it's saying is that this is the knowledge of Allah, whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made the decision in regards to, but just he's implanting the thought within his mind, within his heart, that it's possible that some of your family members will not accompany you on to the ark. So that idea is being given. And do not plead with me. Do not address me. And this does not in, in any way remove um, or prohibits like dua or question, su'al or dua or talab. Mukhataba is more of like a conversation, like an argument, like a discussion. That do not debate me. Do not debate me in regards to those people, alladhina zalamu, those who have wronged. And of course, who does wrong more than the one who wrongs himself? Zalamu anfusahum. Has wronged themselves. And Allah tells us that the greatest wrong you can do to yourself is in a shirk al-zulmun azim. It's to not recognize Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's rights upon you. Alright? So, وَلَا تُخَاطِبْنِي فِي الَّذِينَ ظَلَمُوا إِنَّهُمْ مُغْرَقُونَ Because most definitely they will be, they will drown. They are the people who will drown. So this is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses Nuh alayhi salam. First and foremost, as we said, with the instruction uh, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to construct the ark, and then exactly what to do in regards to um, who will exactly go onto the ark. Um, and, you know, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, some of the mufassirun also go as far as mentioning 
that a little bit of the, uh, the last part of it here where it talked about some of the family members who will not be on the ark. Of course, that is addressed in a lot more detail in Surah Hud, in Surah number 11, the famous story in regards to the son of Nuh alayhi salam. قَالَ رَبِّ إِنَّ بْنِي مِنْ أَهْلِي وَإِنَّ وَعَدَكَ الْحَقُّ وَأَنْتَ أَحْكَمُ الْحَاكِمِينَ Right, that, oh, oh Allah, oh my master, most definitely my son is from my family, and your promise is the truth, and you are the most wise of all those who carry any type of judgment or wisdom. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responded to him in ayah number 46 by saying, إِنَّهُ لَيْسَ مِنْ أَهْلِكَ إِنَّهُ عَمَلٌ غَيْرُ صَالِحٌ That he is not from your family, because his actions do not speak accordingly. His actions are not in accordance with that. And again in Surah Al-Tahreem, in Surah number 66, in ayah number 10, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, ضَرَبَ اللَّهُ مَثَلًا لِلَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا امْرَأَةَ نُوحٍ That an example for, though, an example of, uh, Allah gives the example of those who disbelieve through the example of the wife of Nuh and Wamra'ata Lut and then the wife of Lut that even though they were married to two very righteous slaves of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, فَخَانَتَهُمَا But unfortunately they defied them. فَخَانَتَهُمَا وَلَمْ يُغْنِيَا عَنْهُمَا مِنَ اللَّهِ شَيْئًا وَقِيلَ دَخُلَ النَّارَ مَعَ الدَّاخِلِينَ that ultimately they were told to enter into the fire with those who are entering into the fire. So the wife of Nuh and the son of Nuh. And so one of the, some of the commentary that some of the Mufassirun have here is that in general we kind of know that there's something that runs deeper than blood. And that is basically iman. And what we believe. And our actions and our ethics and our morality. That's something that runs even deeper than blood does. Right, And that's a stronger bond than even blood is. Even though Islam places a lot of uh, regard and respect and emphasis on relations of blood. Right? But notice Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about arham after the taqwa of Allah. That first your relationships will be interpreted by means of looking at your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then... After that filter, initial filter is there, now you have a lot of respect and regard for the bonds of family and for relationships that are established through blood and other means like marriage and nursing and whatnot. But that's the primary means. Is, and the prophets and the anbiya, more than anyone else, you know, because they're made to be role models. The prophets are role models. لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنًا Even though there is a certain school of thought uh, within uh, a lot of, you know, uh, there's a certain school of thought within some Islamic discourse that finds it very hard uh, to process the fact that somebody with a very close and deep like blood relation to a prophet um, could not believe. Because they see it as almost like disrespectful or kind of discrediting a prophet or a messenger. And that's where a lot of times the interpretation of what the Qur'an refers to with قَالَ إِبْرَاهِيمُ لِأَبِيهِ أَلِيهَا That when Abraham said to his father, Azar, that you are taking idols as a god and a deity. Uh, as gods and deities. You are taking idols as gods and deities. That... That wasn't actually his actual biological father. It was more of an uncle who was kind of like an adopted father who raised him, like a foster father who took care of him, so on and so forth. Um, similarly, there are a lot of times thoughts and opinions in regards to some of the family members of the Prophet ﷺ, even though uh, we won't talk about that in a lot of detail. 
Um, just simply because at the end of the day, iman or no iman, belief or no belief, one thing we do have to respect and one thing we do have to understand is that if I had somebody I deeply, profoundly cared about, loved very deeply, and obviously that person didn't end up accepting Islam or believing, I would not want other people to sit there and almost very objectively talk about their eternal fate and kind of deconstruct their status for all of eternity. Well, technically, since he didn't say, you know, the shahada, then huwa finnar, right? I would be so hurt and offended by that, just that conversation. That whatever, it is what it is, and maybe that's exactly what it is. But I just don't appreciate you having this conversation. You're talking about somebody I love, not the weather that you're discussing it so casually. But nevertheless, scholars sometimes within these specific conversations have these discussions. But what I was saying though, philosophically more so, is that the idea of a prophet or a messenger having somebody very close to him not believe, while it can seem kind of maybe antithetical or kind of contradictory to the status and the position of a prophet or messenger, but in fact it's quite um, congruent with the position and the status that a prophet is put in. And the reason for that is they're role models. So if there are going to be people within the community and within the ummah who are going to have near and dear people to them, not believe, and even oppose their beliefs, then they have to have somebody that they can kind of look up to. And therefore you find the Abu Lahab in the life of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Alright? An older uncle, who especially in the absence of parents, father, is supposed to assume kind of the position of guardian and, and, and almost like a, uh, a father. But in fact, to be so aggressive and abusive towards the Prophet sallallahu So it kind of gives you a little bit of an idea. And in fact, this whole idea of one's actions and beliefs kind of interpreting these relationships and establishing these relationships, you, found the, you find the very beautiful and profound statement of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam at the time of the Battle of Khandaq, the Battle of the Trench, when the Prophet sallallahu addressed Salman al-Farisi radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and he said, Salmanu minna al al-bayt. That Salman belongs to my family, even though he was Persian. Not even of the same race or ethnicity. But he's saying Salman is from my family. So you really see prophets and messengers having to almost make this sacrifice. So when we read about the story of Nuh salam in Surah Hud, where it's talking about his son, really read it, of course, not only learning the obvious lesson that Allah points out to us, إِنَّهُ لَيْسَ مِنْ إِنَّهُ عَمَلٌ غَيْرُ But also, there's a secondary lesson there, there's another layer to it. Really appreciate the sacrifice of the messengers and the prophets that they had to make these personal sacrifices. Right? The Prophet and the Messenger, their dua is mustajab. Their dua is answered. So if a Prophet and a Messenger begs before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that Allah grant this specific person iman, I find it completely believable that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will grant them their dua. But it's like the Prophet and the Messenger knows, I am going to have to end up making some of these sacrifices. So that others can then look to me for inspiration and for direction on how to handle these types of situations. 
So really it tells you a lot about um, what some of the prophets and messengers really have to go, to go through and it gives you another level of appreciation of their sacrifices. Ayah number 28, A brief translation, and when you and your companions are settled on the ark, say, praise be to God who delivered us from the wicked people. So a little bit of a more kind of detailed conversation about this particular ayah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَإِذَا اسْتَوَيْتَ أَنْتَ وَمَنْ مَعَكَ Istiwa in the Arabic language means to basically get on top of something, physically almost kind of climb something or board something, right? So obviously it's saying al fulk. So the word istiwa oftentimes comes with the preposition, the sila of ala. And there it means to position or to sit on top of or to climb on top of something. So it's saying, فَإِذَا اسْتَوَيْتَ عَلَى الْفُلْكِ That when you have boarded the ship, when you have boarded the ship, but then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَنْتَ وَمَنْ مَعَكَ أَنْتَ وَمَنْ مَعَكَ That you and those who are with you. So when you have boarded the ship, and those, you and those who are with you. Now, this construction, this way to kind of say what I, what, how I just translated it, when you have boarded the ship, comma, you and those who are with you, can you maybe think of a, a shorter or more abbreviated way to say that? Y'all, these people, y'all, mashallah. Right, very good. Takbir. Alright, so, but, فَإِذَا اسْتَوَيْتُمْ عَلَى الْفُلْكِ فَإِذَا اسْتَوَيْتُمْ عَلَى الْفُلْكِ When all of you, alright, when y'all have boarded the ship. That's it. It's right there. It's all right there. But the question is, is that how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said it? No. And of course, وَلَعَيَاذُ billah, Like, it's unfathomable, but I'm just asking the obvious question for the purpose of understanding. Could Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, didn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala know how to say it in this manner or fashion? وَلَعَيَاذُ billah. Of course. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is above and beyond uh, us and our intellect and thoughts. So, but then why isn't it said like that? Even, even especially when, now this is a real question, when the salient feature of the Quranic language is to be very brief and consolidated and compact and multi-layered. Why is it not said that way? When all of you have boarded the ship. Why when you have boarded the ship, comma, you and those with you? That there is obviously some purpose and reason to this. And what many of the Mufassirun, such as the Makhshari, Razi, Ibn Kathir, Qurtubi, Ibn Ashur, they all point out is that this is demonstrating leadership. This is to demonstrate leadership because we're not just talking about some ordinary person. We're talking about a prophet of Allah, a messenger of God. And so through his action, first of all, to him as an instruction, and then through his action, we are being taught what leadership is like. When you board, because now again, obvious, obviously, think about it, right? First of all, uh, Razi mentioned something here, and again, this is a lot of this is based upon the Israeliyat, so Allah knows best. Um, but he, he mentions that it is narrated from Abdullah bin Abbas, radiallahu ta'ala anhumah, that كان في السفينة ثمانون insanan. 
that there were about 80 some odd people, some narrations say bid'a'an wa thamanina, that there were 80 some odd people upon, uh, in the ark uh, on the ship. Nuh, there was Nuh alayhi salam, and basically six or seven of his family members. And then that leaves, so basically Nuh alayhi salam and his family members were about seven or eight individuals, so that leaves about 70 some odd believers were with Nuh alayhi salam on board his ship. Yes. So 70 some odd believers were with Nuh alayhi salam aboard the ark. Now, we can again, we don't know concretely, but we can imagine it was a decent sized qawm, group of people, hundreds, maybe thousands. And from amongst all of them, 70, 80 some odd people boarding into this huge contraption. There must have been a lot of nervousness and apprehension. What are we exactly doing? Why are we doing it? Are we sure this is the right thing to do? What's going to happen to us? Right? So on and so forth. And this really becomes a moment where you have to demonstrate and you have to display leadership. That you have to be the first one to walk up those steps and then turn and stand, face the people and say, come on. And this is very interesting. So the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, right, when it came to the battlefield, he'd be the first one to walk out in front. Lead. But when it came to like traveling and returning home from the battlefield, then he was at the back of the army, picking up after everybody, making sure nobody was left behind. So just like leadership we understand sometimes requires you to be at the back, well, let's not forget about the fact that sometimes leadership requires you to be at the front. Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala anhu talks about the Prophet ﷺ on the day of Badr, the Battle of Badr. The Prophet ﷺ, the day the Battle of Badr occurred, the Prophet of Allah wasallam was 55 years old. 55 years old. And Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala anhu, the day of Battle of Badr occurred, he was 25 years old. And Ali radiallahu anhu said that I could not keep up with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi It didn't even look like he was walking or running. It looked like he was leaping. I could, I could not. And Ali radiallahu anhu wasn't just, it's not just a matter of age, that he was half his age. Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu was known to be a very physically gifted human being. He's like what we would call in our, you know, kind of lingo like an athlete. He was a warrior. And he said, I could not keep up with him. I couldn't. So, leadership sometimes requires you to, to literally, quite literally lead, be in front, and kind of put everyone's mind at ease. Musa alayhi salam was the first one to step out into, to step out in between the water when the seas parted. Because again, you can imagine the nervousness, the, compre- the apprehension. So he led, right, to put everyone's mind at rest. So this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says it in this remarkable fashion. That when you have boarded the ark, comma, you and those who are with you. Fakul, now say, and again, why is it not saying fakulu? Then all of you should say. Because now that you've established leadership, what happens? When the imam has stepped forward and said Allahu Akbar and established the leadership, 
When he says, dalin, does he have to turn around and say, everybody say, Amin? Does he have to do that? No. He says, dalin, and everyone says, Amin. Leadership is established now. So, فَقُلْ Then you will just have to say, you won't even have to tell them to say, you will just have to say it out loud, Alhamdulillahi الَّذِي Jana. The ultimate praise was, is, and will always be for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. Who rescued us, who saved us, مِنَ الْقَوْمِ الظَّالِمِينَ From these terrible people, or these wrongdoing, oppressive people. The next ayah, ayah number 29, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes on to teach uh, Nuh alayhi salam another dua, وَقُلْ and say, رَبِّ أَنزِلْنِي مُنزَلًا مُبَارَكًا وَأَنْتَ خَيْرُ الْمُنزِلِينَ Very brief translation, My Lord, let me land with your blessing. It is you who provides the best landings. So, رَبِّ أَنزِلْنِي مُنزَلًا مُبَارَكًا وَأَنْتَ خَيْرُ الْمُنزِلِينَ Rabbi of course means my Lord, my Master. أَنزِلْنِي أَنزِلْنِي means that allow me to reach a destination, to kind of uh, de-plane, to, to de-board. Alright? So allow me to land. Anzilni munzalan mubarakan. Add a blessed landing at a blessed place. Allow me to settle and land at a very, very blessed place. Wa anta munzilin. And you are the best of those who provide a landing spot or who provide a place to stay. Alright? So. This is the dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala taught Nuh alayhi salam. There's some discussion amongst the mufassirun. Was this dua made after boarding the ship before like uh, the ship, the ark basically became afloat? There was a more so talking about make the ship float properly. No, most of the mufassirun, and especially I'm going to make a little bit of Quranic correlation here, that most of the mufassirun are of the opinion that this was the dua that was said at the time when it was time for the ark to basically settle down. After the tufan and the flood was over, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Hud, in that very remarkable ayah, وَقِيلَ يَا أَرْضُ بْلَعِي مَاءَكِ O earth, swallow up your water. وَقِيلَ يَا أَرْضُ بْلَعِي مَاءَكِ وَيَا سَمَاءُ أَقْلِعِي And O sky, lock up and seize up. وَغِيذَ الْمَاءُ And then the water completely receded. وَقُضِيَ الْأَمْرُ And Allah's will had been done. Right? So, after that, basically, when that command was given and that began to transpire, that at that time, now this is a dua that was given to Nuh alayhi salam. This is a dua to read now, and then obviously the believers with him were following him in this dua. Rabbi anzilni munzalam mubarakan wa anta munzilin. Now, again, why do we say that? That this was a dua made when it was basically time for the ark to settle? Determining kind of where they would get off the ark and where they would basically find a home and abode and whatnot. That in the Quran, in Surah Al-Isra, Surah number 17 and Ayah number 80, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala teaches a very beautiful dua to the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, in regards to the hijrah. The migration made by the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, where the Prophet sallallahu was taught by Allah, وَقُلْ and say, رَبِّ أَدْخِلْنِي مُدْخَلَ صِدَقٍ That, O oh my Lord and Master, enter me into a truthful, enter me in a good manner. 
Like, allow me to enter into the city in a respectable manner and fashion. And allow me that when I do leave, to leave in a respectable manner. Right? So this was the dua that was made by the Prophet ﷺ at the time of the hijrah as he was arriving within the city of Medina. So this demonstrates again that this was another place in the Qur'an in surah number 11, ayah number 48. Allah says, Nuh, It was said, O Nuh, ihbit bisalamin minna wa barakatin. mubarakan. So again, you see the correlation of the words. Allah told Nuh salam that now you can go ahead and get off the ark peacefully and safely with safety provided by us. وَبَرَكَاتٍ عَلَيْكَ With God's blessing showering down upon you. وَعَلَىٰ أُمَّمٍ مِمَّمْ مَعَكَ And also blessing showering down upon the people that are with you, that are along with you. And so overall, um, that these are some of the du'as that we basically see that are being taught to us throughout the Qur'an. And this is a du'a that can be said whenever we are arriving at a destination. Rabbi anzilni munzalam mubarakan wa anta khayrul munzilin. And Ali bin Abi Talib, very beautifully, uh, Imam al-Qurtubi, rahimahullahu ta'ala, narrates this, that Ali bin Abi Talib, radiyallahu ta'ala anhu, أَنَّهُ كَانَ إِذَا دَخَلَ الْمَسْجِدَ قَالَ أَلَّهُمَّ أَنْزِلِي مُنْزَلًا مُبَارَكًا وَأَنْتَ خَيْلُ مُنْزِلِينَ That whenever Ali radiallahu would enter into the masjid, this is the dua that he would make. Basically saying that I allow the masjid to be my home. Let me be at home at the masjid. Let my heart be at home at the masjid. And the Prophet ﷺ, to kind of comment on that, the Prophet ﷺ, when he mentions in the hadith, سَبْعَةٌ يُضِلُّهُمُ اللَّهُ فِي ظِلِّ يَوْمَ لَا ظِلِّهِ لَا ظِلُّهُ That seven that God will shade them under His shade, on the day that there will be no shade other than His shade, that one of those people is, وَرَجُلٌ قَلْبُهُ مُعَلَّقٌ بِالْمَسْجِدِ That a person whose heart is permanently attached to the masjid. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us amongst them. The last thing to kind of explain about this particular ayah, is that وَأَنْتَ خَيْرُ الْمُنْزِلِينَ You are the best of those who provides kind of a landing spot. How do we exactly understand that when Allah is the only one who does that? We've already talked about this, where Allah said, we, we, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, فَتَبَارَكَ اللَّهُ أَحْسَنُ الْخَلِقِينَ وَأَنْتَ خَيْرُ الْوَارِثِينَ وَأَنْتَ خَيْرُ الْمُنْزِلِينَ That this is kind of a construction saying, even if anybody else could provide a home or a landing place or a place to settle, Nobody could ever do as remarkable and as, um, you know, a more gracious, uh, nobody could ever con- do it more graciously than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does. Ayah number 30. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّ فِي ذَلِكَ لَآيَاتٍ وَإِن كُنَّا لَمُبْتَلِينَ So again, a brief translation. There are signs in all this. We have always put people to the test. So, inna fi thal- there are two parts to the ayah. Inna fi thalika la ayatin. That most definitely, fi thalika. Now again, thalika is a pointing word, ismul ishara. How do we translate the word thalika, everybody? That. But I told you all that whenever the word that, thalika, comes at the end of kind of like a discourse or a conversation, it means what? The aforementioned, all of the above. In the aforementioned, in the passage that we just completed, 
right? Because we're going to be transitioning to uh, not maybe a whole different passage thematically, but kind of a subsection of the passage. We're going to be transitioning in ayah number 31 within the same theme, but kind of a subsection within that passage. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, in the aforementioned, in the above mentioned ayat, there are most definitely, without a doubt, not a sign, but signs. La ayatin. And again, being in the common form, not al-ayat, lal-ayat, lal-ayati, but la-ayatin. Right? It's in the common form, meaning there are different, different types of signs. There are many very profound and very diverse lessons. If you read and you understand and you contemplate what you, what you have just read, then there are some very profound, life-changing, perspective-altering, paradigm-shifting Signs and lessons within these ayat, these past, this, these ayat, these verses. So some of the, and so let me go ahead and talk about. I'll come back to this in just a second, in just a moment, and I'll talk about just some of the signs that are uh, pointed out by some of the mufassirun. Wa in kunna la mubtalin, wa in kunna la mubtalin, and most definitely we have always tested. وَإِن كُنَّا لَمُبْتَلِينَ Most definitely we have always tested. And I'll even further kind of comment on this just a little bit. But the idea of test is also something that is very uh, present. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about the different ways. ابْتَلَى إِبْرَاهِيمَ رَبُّهُ That remember, when Ibrahim's master, Allah, tested him, tested Abraham. So the tests of all the prophets, many of the prophets are mentioned within the Qur'an. Similarly, the Prophet ﷺ says in an authentic narration, أَشَدُّ الْبَلَاءِ يَلَمْبِيَاثُمْ وَلَمْثَلْ فَلَمْثَلْ The most severely tested of people are the Prophets, and then whoever is the closest to them and the closest to them. Also, um, it's narrated um, in the uh, incident of when Abu Sufyan was questioned by uh, Hiraqal, the emperor of Rome, when he was questioned about the Prophet ﷺ, when he received a letter from the Prophet ﷺ, and Abu Sufyan was there on some business, and he basically summoned him to the court, and he questioned him and asked him, and he was a knowledgeable man about scripture, and he questioned him and asked him about the Prophet ﷺ, and when he asked him that, you know, um, have you had conflict? And he said, yes we have. He said, well who comes out on top? Who wins? for lack of a better word, and he said, well, sometimes we gain the upper hand, and sometimes they do. Sometimes they do, sometimes we do. And before somebody could kind of try to extrapolate from that, that, oh, then it's obvious he's not a real messenger, otherwise he would never, you know, suffer any type of a, a loss in the battlefield, or a defeat in the battlefield, that Hiraqal actually says, كَذَلِكَ الْأَنْبِيَاءِ that is exactly what happens with the mess, with the prophets. Tubtala, thumma takunu lahum He said initially they are tested through difficulty and adversity, but eventually they gain the upper hand. In eventuality, they have, as we like to say, the last laugh. They gain the upper hand, right? But initially, there is there are some tests and trials. Well, aqiba Right, so this is a, a theme and a concept, and this is 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala very conclusively talks about this in Surah Al-Ankabut, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَحَسِبَ النَّاسُ أَن يُتْرَكُوا أَن يَقُولُوا آمَنَّا وَهُمْ لَا يُفْتَنُونَ That have people really assumed that they will be left after having said, Amanna, we believe, وَهُمْ لَا يُفْتَنُونَ And they won't be tested. Right? So the issue of tested there, وَإِن كُنَّا لَمُبْتَلِينَ Allah said, we have always tested. And we will always test. So, now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّ فِي ذَلِكَ لَآيَاتِ So kind of explore, just very briefly, some of the Mufassirun have kind of compiled some different thoughts and reflections, and also kind of given it some thought myself. Just a few thoughts to kind of share about some of the lessons that we can extrapolate from this, particularly the specific dynamics that are mentioned within this passage, these ayat, and especially the element of tests being talked about. So first and foremost is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has really you know, laid out for us the fact that after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talked about creating human beings, creating the heavens and the earth, that now it's not just left to itself. Creation is not left to itself. But there are two things. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Rabb. He continues to look after, take care, nourish, and, and provide, and protect the creation, even from itself. And secondly, there is a spiritual connection that remains. That again, Allah didn't just create creation and just leave it to run amok. But, Allahu khaliqu kulli shayin wa huwa ala kulli shayin wakil. God maintains, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala maintains His position over the creation where we have spiritual obligations to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number two, is that the message of the truth, prophets and messengers or revelation, the message, the truth, always faces opposition. Always faces opposition. It's in sunnati lahi tabdila. This is a sunnah of Allah. Right? Uh, Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu ta'ala anhu, a very knowledgeable and very wise companion of the Prophet wasallam. he actually said that if somebody is doing what seems to be kind of like some Islamic work, if you want to call it that, and deals with no opposition at all. I fear that that person is actually making very egregious compromises within the Islamic values. That opposition has always been a part of the, 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 um, the test and the trial. It comes with the territory. Number three is that Eventually, like we talked about, in eventuality, no matter how difficult it becomes, I mean, think about the Makkan era. Bilal radiallahu ta'ala anhu is being dragged through the streets. Can you imagine a human being being tied to a horse and just being dragged around in the street? Like, just imagine what that does to a person. Khababinul Arat radiallahu ta'ala anhu. A fire being lit, coals being put on that fire until they burn red. And then him, him being put on that, those hot burning coals, his back being put on there and being dragged across it. It's unfathomable. I can't even process what that, 
is, what that, what that would even be like, what that would even look like, or sound like, God forbid. Right? So think about the level of test and trial. Right? A whole family just being murdered in the streets. Sumayya and Yasir, So think about how bad things got. Sahaba are like leaving their homes, running away from their own homes in the middle of the night. As if they've committed some crime. And going and living as refugees in East Africa. The Prophet ﷺ being hunted down on the hijrah from Makkah to Medina. Like think about how bad things got. But ultimately, how did things end? With Fatih Makkah, with the conquest of Makkah. So that is a part of the lesson in this passage that in eventuality, the upper hand is given to the people of the truth. And we have to believe in that. And number four, number four, is that that number four is that these experiences, something very interesting and very powerful, that the sharing of these experiences in and of itself has always been, and as you know, demonstrated by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Himself, that the sharing of these experiences and t- the telling of these stories and sharing experiences, this is a profound means of encouraging, motivating, inspiring, and consoling people. And so just as the stories of the Prophets are shared with us, to, to, with the Prophet to comfort him, to console him, to inspire him, to motivate him, to strengthen him. And it inspires similarly the believers. That we also have to remember that along with sharing the stories of the prophets, sharing the stories and the experiences of our prophet Muhammad ﷺ and his companions and the believers and the followers, and even then sharing our own experiences and struggles and stories with other people, that this will be a profound means of encouraging and inspiring future generations of believers who will then find the strength to persevere through difficulty and adversity. So all of these are some of the lessons that we extrapolate from this. Inna fi dhalika la ayatim wa in kunna la mubtaleen. And inshallah with that at ayah number 30 we'll conclude. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the ability uh, to practice everything that's been said and heard. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi. Subhanakallah wa bihamdik. Nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nasakh wa natubu ilayk.